Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Lynn Testa, and today is October 1st. You know what that means? It means that it's pumpkin season, like duck season and wabbit season. Also means that we need to bring in one Mr. Jim Hill to greet our fall festivities. Jim, how's it going? Give me a minute here, zipping up the pumpkin outfit. So. <laughs> oh, that's what that is. Oh, that makes me Well, stuff. I have a side job as a crash car dummy, and this, this helps, Len. You know, <laughs> just hard to find a front seat I fit in, but anyway. Jim, a couple of things we want to talk about. We're going to continue our conversation here about uh, Mickey's Toontown in Disneyland. But before we do that, Disney's just announced that the Epcot International Festival of the Arts is coming back to Epcot in 2018. Almost exactly the same dates as last time, January 12th to February 19th in 2018. But this time, it's going to be seven days a week instead of just on weekends. What's your thought around this? This has turned out to be a pretty nice promotion for what Disney is doing on Broadway. And I heard an interesting rumor that Frozen right now is actually out in Denver at the Buell Theater. And it's in the middle of its sort of pre-Broadway tryout, and it evidently is doing very well. But the thing is, is they're going to take a couple of months off to sort of retool and move the show into the St. James Theater. And my understanding is that the folks who go to the, the Festival of the Arts may actually get to see a couple of members of the cast of the show. They may come down there as part of the pre-Broadway kickoff of the show and put in an appearance there. So it'll be interesting when they announce the talent that's coming to see who's singing in the American Gardens Theater, because mm-hmm. you might get to see a little bit of Frozen ahead of time. Frozen in Florida. That's a really good addition to the Festival of the Arts, because I think last year they didn't really have anything in terms of the performing arts, right? They had singing, but in terms of theater, Mm -hmm. I don't think they had a lot. As I recall, they brought members of the Lion King cast down. I want to say Ashley Brown, who played Mary Poppins, did a two-night presentation. I mean, the thing is, you had people like Josh Strickland, who played Tarzan on Broadway back in 2006. The fact that they would be bringing folks in from a show that was about to open rather than folks who were from shows that had closed, that might give a little more heat, a little more light. Festival of the Arts, if we're looking at the food and wine or the flower and garden playbook, we can just anticipate that this is going to continue to bump out. What was it, four days last time around, now seven days? It was five weeks last year, but it was uh, only a couple days a week. Now it's all seven. Okay. You want to put good money down on what they're doing in 2019, Len? (laughs) (laughs) If they could do it more than five weeks, I think that's possible. I didn't mind this festival among all the others. I think the things they did with the John Hench drawings and the Mary Blair stuff Mm -hmm. was a good addition. They could pull stuff out of the archives relatively fast. I think we talked about this during last year's event where... The cast members who were working it told us the entire festival came together in a little more than three weeks. Now they've had oh yeah, yeah a, a year to plan it. Hopefully we'll get even more interesting things from the archives on that. They had done survey work and they had felt people out about doing their first festival that was going to be future world based. One of the components of this was going to be bringing battle bots in and having them tape a number of shows there. One of the reasons that the folks only had three weeks to pull together the Festival of the Arts is that the decision came down, okay, we're going to concentrate on repairing Future World going forward for the 50th anniversary. And it's like, why base a festival in an area that's going to be a construction site? (laughs) See Disney's Hollywood Studios. (laughs) All right. You, You bring up a very interesting point. 
<laughs> well, I do it twice, right? You don't learn anything the second time you're kicked by a mule. I understand. All right. Okay. As I understand it, the folks who run Epcot hope that with this $2 billion redo, which you're still hearing the same things I am, but it's suddenly a flashing green light, right? Oh, I haven't heard this. No, no, no. I haven't, I haven't looked. Uh, I haven't looked recently. Is it? Uh, okay. As we segue. <laughs> there are some concerns at Walt Disney World in regard to attendance softening and people not showing up when they were supposed to. And so the very ambitious Epcot $2 billion redo has gone from a solid green. This is actually going to happen. I mean, there's a number of things that have already been announced. Ratatouille and the Guardians of the Galaxy ride, likewise the Mission Space Restaurant and so forth. But a lot of stuff hadn't yet been officially announced or greenlit. And now suddenly that stuff is on hold. Sliding into that, you have some employment-related news. Yeah, we've heard for a couple of weeks that layoffs might be coming to all of Walt Disney World based on mm-hmm. what's going on at ABC and ESPN and a little bit in the parks and resorts. But uh, yeah, it sounds like some of the layoffs may have already started with uh, the web and interactive group. So what I'm hearing is there have been uh, some announcements already made today. We'll, uh, we'll see what happens. But I, I was told it could be uh, up in the thousands of management positions or middle management that are eliminated. I don't think it'll be, yeah, I don't think it's frontline cast members. I think it's, I think it's management. Yeah. I mean, and some of that will come from offering retirement packages. Someone will come from redundancy. I mean, for example, remember interactive media in one of the weirder melding of two worlds, what was it, a year, year and a half ago, Disney consumer products and interactive media sort of from the, hey, peanut butter and liver. (laughs) The thing that I got out of the announcement mm-hmm. that I heard that about you know interactive is the fact that Disney still owns Go.com. Mm-hmm. If you often wonder why Disney's website is like Disney.Go.com, it's because in the late 90s they bought Go.com business and domain for, what, 18 bajillion dollars. Oh, yes, yes. And it's like the wedding gift that you can't throw away, even though you don't use it. Like There is no purpose to Go.com anymore. It's never going to be a portal to the internet, but Disney is stubbornly hanging on to it. To quote Mean Girls, that they're trying to make fetch a thing, you know? <laughs> and, and every time interactive, you know, something happens at interactive, the first thing I think of is, oh yeah, they're st- mm-hmm. still trying to make go.com a thing. Yeah, all right. But we'll, we'll see what happens. Uh, the, uh, today's October 1st. It's the start of mm-hmm. Disney's fiscal year. Of course, we're recording this a few days early. So between uh, now and uh, the actual October 1st, any number of announcements could be made. I do expect some to happen. We'll see. We'll see what happens. But again, I'd honestly, watching the Walt Disney Company go from this operation that believes strongly that you needed institutional memory, you needed people to effectively be lifers, to now how they've gone from a per-project basis, that there's this sort of core of people, but then it's just sort of you staff up for whatever you need to do, and then you cut it down. And these days, in order to keep profits at their absolute height, it's just sort of like, how much can we cut? Where can we make changes? I get concerned because there's there's sort of the famous Walt Disney story about if you go cheap on people, the amount of money you have to spend to get them to come back is pretty astounding. And for a company like Disney, if you get rid of your 40-hour employees and make them all 20-hour employees that aren't necessarily invested, that's going to potentially bite you in the butt, especially when you think about situations like just this past week or so where... 
If you're a 20-hour employee and the resort is getting ready for yet another hurricane, are you really going to make the effort to go into work? Yeah. How invested are you in the success at that point of the uh, of the organization when uh, you've got other things to worry about? It's true. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see what happens. I'm, I'm really interested to hear, Jim, what, uh, what Disney decides to do after October 1st, especially with Epcot, because... If there's one truism in the theme park mm-hmm. industry, it's that building new rides and attractions will get people through the door. I think Disney's got caught flat-footed over the last few years with a lack of things that have been opened. I mean, they did the new Fantasyland stuff that finished in 2014, but aside from some redos of attractions in, in 2016 and the couple of Pandora things this year, they've really got nothing huge between 2015, 2016. Mm-hmm now and really until Star Wars Land opened at the end of 2018. They've got the Toy Story Land stuff, which we're going to talk about in an upcoming show. But um, realistically, I think most theme parks understand that you have to open up a new ride every summer in order to get people in. And especially when it comes to Epcot, there hasn't been that investment. But I think that idea is coming back into fashion. Hopefully some of these uh, uh, money-saving moves that we see Disney making will, uh, will result in more attractions down the line. We'll see what happens. It's so interesting you mentioned that, Lem, because in the last week or so, Universal announced that they're closing their Terminator 2 3D attraction. In fact, I saw that. Uh, yeah, yeah, a week from today, on October 8th, it'll be closing. And given what you were saying about Disney getting caught flat footed and there was a lag, Universal's not going to let that happen. Their plan going forward next year, they'll have the Fast and the Furious attraction starting in 2019 in both parks. Every year, they're opening a major attraction. 2019, you'll see the expansion of Harry Potter. Well, they closed Dragon Challenge in that park back in early September. I want to say the 4th. Mm-hmm. You know how we were talking about supposedly the Star Trek ride that's coming into Universal? That, in fact, is supposed to be the replacement for Terminator. Is it really a Star Trek ride? Yeah, or at least that's what I've heard, though. I guess the plan was to shoot some footage on the set of the Bridge of the Enterprise when they were making the next Star Trek, Star Trek IV at Paramount. But evidently, Paramount is not necessarily rushing to make Star Trek IV. They'd prefer to let their Star Trek Discovery show, which is CBS All Access, about late last month. And for Universal's point of view, it's like, we kind of want the characters that the people know. Yeah. But yeah, 2019... Every year, going forward, they're going to have a new attraction. And in both parks, mind you, not just trading back and forth between Islands Adventure and Universal Studios Florida. So that does step up the heat on Disney. So Star Wars will supposedly be doing battle with Star Trek. Finally. Yeah. 30 or 40 years after we could have had this this battle, we're, going, we're finally going to have it. Lightsaber versus phaser. Meet you out front. Exactly. Exactly. Good. That's good. It's just interesting to watch Disney's direct competition sort of taking a that much more aggressive stance and remembering that Disney wouldn't have made Galaxy's Edge if those in the world of Harry Potter hadn't hit as big as it did. That's true. It's good to have a number one and a number two to keep everybody on their on their toes. No, that's it exactly. And meanwhile, over at SeaWorld, they do have their Sesame Street land that'll be opening also, I believe, in 2019. But... I just don't know if that's going to put any gas in the tank. I, uh, I don't think so. That's a whole separate issue. The postmortem on SeaWorld will be interesting when it happens. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But anyway, Jim, let's switch over and talk about our the second part of our, our Toontown discussion. Now, when we left mm. off, 
we were talking about how Toontown came to be in Disneyland. It all started off when, just like the topic we were just discussing, Disney needed something to draw in attendance while they were busy building other attractions. And so we get the celebration of Birthdayland, and then it becomes a thing in Toontown. What happens next? Again, just to recap here, Mickey's Birthday Land opens on June 18th, 1988. But four days later, in theaters nationwide, Who Framed Roger Rabbit opens. And uh, this is a giant hit for the Disney company. That year, it makes $156 million in North America, $173 million overseas, total of $329 million worldwide at the box office. And that $329 million, that's when steak was a nickel, <laughs> right? A pound, yeah, so... We're talking about real money, well, yeah, right? To put this in perspective, Len, the company's two other hits that year, Beaches, which made $57 million stateside. Was that the Bette Midler movie? That's a Bette Midler movie. And then Oliver and Company, which was... Also a, Bette Midler. Yes, no, no, actually, yes. <laughs> yes. Was it really? She, oh, she voices <laughs> the, the poodle Georgette in that movie. And in fact, she has the best number in the film. Pretty isn't easy. So, no, totally. You nailed it. But at that point, that was the joke. That if Disney was making anything, Midler was in it. Whether it was Big Business or Down and Out in Beverly Hills. Oh, yeah. I remember she was doing stuff in Disney's Hollywood Studios with the ticket. And you have to understand, Roger Rabbit is a very troubled production. Originally budgeted for $30 million, but because of the mix of live action and animation and having to get it mm-hmm. into theaters at a set release date that had been locked in because Disney had made a deal with McDonald's that they were going to promote it. So cost jumped to $50 million, though I've got friends at the mm-hmm. studio who swear up and down that the actual final production cost was closer to 70 which to put that in 2017 dollars, that's almost $170 million today. That's a lot. But on the other hand, it made money, it sold a lot of merch. So the company quickly moves to capitalize on the success. And in fact, J.J. Abrams, he actually is the first guy through the door working on a Roger Rabbit sequel. They bring him in in early 89, and he preps a script with... Uh, Wait, J.J. Abrams was going to work on the Roger Rabbit sequel? God, really? who didn't work on the Roger Rabbit sequel? If you ever get in front of him for the Star Wars publicity thing when it, with the machine when it comes out, you can't ask him a Star Wars question to open. You have to ask him what happened to Roger Rabbit 2. Promise you, Len, if that actually happens, I will do that. Quick segue here, by the way. You interviewed the Property Brothers, right? <laughs> not too, not too long. Did you ask them my question about the drinking game? <laughs> Actually, I did. And, you know, the, the... <laughs> All right, so let me give, let me give some background. So uh, on HGTV, there is a show called Property Brothers. Two brothers, Drew and Jonathan Scott, and one of them is a general contractor, I believe, and the other one is a designer or decorator, and they go around renovating homes. If you've ever watched it, there are some cliches or some some tropes that the show follows. One of them is that everyone wants an open concept house. So when Jim told me that he was going to interview these guys, I said, well, you know, Laurel and I have a drinking game where every time someone says they want an open concept something, we drink. And that every time someone says they want uh, edgy or urban, you finish whatever you're drinking automatically. And by the end of the episode, everyone's hammered because those are the cliches that show up in every single episode. So I told Jim. Oh, my God. You know, when you talk to these guys, tell them I've invented a drinking game based on their show. All right. So what happened next? (laughs) Well, the weird thing is they actually wind up doing stuff like this in their show. They actually played a game on stage where people, they ask them, what do they want to find in a mate and in a, a house they're looking to renovate? And this one sweet little grandmother looking type thing said, 
Well, she wants to find wood. And it was just sort of like, oh, oh, oh God. Oh, God. <laughs> I went funky and urban in both of those things. I mean, what? <laughs> I think that we saw them on the first stop of their book tour. And I would imagine the game didn't make it to, to stop two. But <laughs> very, very yeah. sweet guys. All right. Thank you for uh, thank you for throwing my question in there. That's uh, The other thing that I love about uh, about those shows is, like, you get this couple and, like, one of them is a part-time harmonica tuner. The other one is a dog walker, but only for Cocker Spaniels because she specializes. And, uh, you know, together their budget's $1.8 million. I'm like, what? <laughs> what, what? What careers do you have where you can afford $1.8 million? Anyway. All right. So going back, J.J. Abrams was uh, was was uh, brought in early on to work on the sequel to Roger Rabbit. All right. Yeah. But that's two and three years down the line or so they think at this point. On the other hand, Disney MGM Studios opens on May 1st, 1989. And mm -hmm. Michael Eisner, who's desperate to do anything that will make the studio theme park theme hip and happening, it's like he turns to the Imagineers and it's like, look, we have a hit film and I want that in the studio yesterday. And the Imagineers at this point are hustling because at this point, Universal is still planning on opening its theme park in 1989. They eventually pushed it off to June of 1990. So here are the Imagineers looking over their shoulders at Universal bearing down on them. And here's Eisner going, hey, and you need to find a way to put Roger Rabbit into that park every possible place you can. And they're like, okay, Mr. Eisner. And into the studios. Into the studios. All right. Okay. And some of the stuff was actually really cleverly done. I mean, for example, even today, you can stand outside of Hollywood and dine and look up and see the offices of Eddie Valiant and Roger's outline in the, the Venetian blinds. That was easy to do. On the other hand, yep. Backstage tour, it was like, okay, how do we do that? And you got to remember that Roger was shot all over the place, but mostly on the West Coast. And so they had to schlep a lot of giant props out. They brought three of Eddie Valiant's cars in, in different states of disarray and put those out in the boneyard. After you came through Catastrophe Canyon, we're headed back through the New York Batclot to the offload area. You first rolled past a red car that they brought out all the way from California. And then they actually brought the Dipmobile and they had it oh, upright and okay. operating and bubbling. In fact, as you went into the offload area, the gun raised up and it was this fully automated with a, a soundtrack. It was a really cool little button at the end of the tour. And then once you got off the tour and were making your way out to sort of that waiting area between the tram tour and the walking tour, they mm -hmm. managed, again, in just a couple of months to create the Acme Gag Factory. They had a shopping area and a photo area that was all themed to Roger Rabbit. And what led you down there were these giant painted Roger Rabbit feet on the ground. And then everybody was following Michael's orders. We need to put Roger in the film that's being created as the introduction for the film previews that are shown at the very end of the walking tour. So they actually added a scene in it where Michael goes up to a conference door and opens it and says, OK, we're showing the previews and who's in this room. But Roger, with a bunch of Disney suits, you know, negotiating his deal for the next sequel, Roger gets up and runs out of the room and ends down in the screening room and is bragging about how he has the very best seat only to be crushed by a gesture. They had more Roger Rabbit suits for walk-around encounters than they did for Mickey at that park. In fact, I guess there was some discussion wow. at some point about 
well, do we really want to put Mickey in this park? Why don't we make this Rogers Park? And by then, they had the research. They knew that people wanted all of the characters in the park. But meanwhile, you've got the Imagineers who were working on Anaheim's answer to Mickey's birthday land. But again, before we get started here, it's important to sort of talk for a second or two about the rivalry between Anaheim and, and Orlando. Cast members who work at Disneyland Park point out that we were the first, whereas the folks who work at Walt Disney World, well, yeah, but we're the biggest and the best. That became a sore point for folks in Anaheim. And so the Imagineers would try to address that. So when they were doing their response to Mickey's birthday land, instead of the three acres for that land, they decided, okay, we're going to do... 14 acres, but, you know, we're going to borrow from the Pirates of the Caribbean playbook. We're going to have people enter from inside the park and go under the berm and come up into this new land. Back then, Michael Eisner had the survey research in front of him, and the two most popular characters at that point mm -hmm. for the company in retail sales were Mickey Mouse and Winnie the Pooh. For the project that was initially called Mickey Land... You came up under the railroad next to Small World, and there's going to be an urban area, the inner city area. This is where Mickey Mouse lived, and this is where you could visit with Mickey and Minnie and those characters in their houses. But if you wandered out to the country, you then found yourself in the Hundred Acre Woods, and this is mm -hmm. where you could do pretty much the same thing with the Winnie the Pooh characters, that there would have been Eeyore's house. It was mostly very sedate and small, and here comes Roger Rabbit. And suddenly the edict comes down. Roger Rabbit needs to start appearing in Disneyland. We need to find a way to put Roger Rabbit in that environment. And, and some of the ideas they came up with are genuinely strange, Lynn. One of the ways they got Roger Rabbit into Disneyland, they would do these seasonal festivals at Disneyland to try to get people to come out to the park. So one of them was called the State Fair. In 1988, for the State Fair, the way they got Roger Rabbit into the park is they built a lighter-than-air dirigible that flew over Disneyland. But the gimmick <laughs> is that the gentleman who did Roger Rabbit's voice and the gentleman who did Launchpad McQuack for DuckTales, they created this whole loop of conversations between these two characters that were then blasted out through speakers about, well, I want to drive the dirigible. And of course, we're the country with Hindenburg. And no, that's what I think is beautiful about it. The idea that the Disney Corporation would float a blimp above a theme park is just whimsical to me. I love it. I think it's a fantastic idea. So that's Roger's introduction to the park. But here's the funnier part of the plan. Okay, so mm -hmm. we now get into 1989. What happens in August of 1989 is... Disney signs a letter of intent to inquire the Muppets from Jim Henson. And then in November that mm -hmm. same year, we get The Little Mermaid. And so every time the Imagineers sit down with Michael and start talking about Mickey Land, he's like, oh, well, now we got to find a place in the park for the Muppets. So can you put the Muppets in Mickey Land? And then in November, when Little Mermaid comes out, it becomes this massive hit. And then, you know, in early 1990, he gets all of these Academy Award nominations. And it's the same thing. You know, Michael's like, wow, you know, we got to get her in the park as quickly as possible. Can you make room for Ariel in Mickey Land? And it's like, let me get this straight. You want Muppets, Mickey, Mermaid, and Roger Rabbit all in one land. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> all in 14 acres. And what happens next 
we'll get to in the next installment of the chronological Disneyland. How about that? Let's also talk about why there never became a, a second Roger Rabbit film. Because I, I think this is going to be one of those things like uh, the Black Sabbath reunion. There will eventually be another one. We just don't know when it's going to happen, right? I have to tell you, Len, I actually own a copy of the script for Toon Platoon, which was the prequel. When you say own, are you doing air quotes around own? I bought this at a Disney collectible show. So I'm assuming the nice gentleman who pulled it out from under his table, hidden under a tablecloth, had the right to sell it to me. <laughs> the opening scene is sort of the farm from The Wizard of Oz. Two boys leaning at a fence and they're just talking about their brother Roger, how he's gone into the barn to go milk the cow. And it's like, well, the cow isn't in there, the bull's in there. And then you hear, Wah! and you see a hole in the roof that's rabbit shaped as the bull has kicked Roger through. And what you eventually find out is that Roger had been adopted by this human family and had no clue that he wasn't a human. All they know is that his mother and father live in Hollywood. And so Roger hops a train, heads to Hollywood. And then it becomes a weird sort of World War II related story. But it's set in 39, 40, 41. The U.S. Army thinking that because tunes are indestructible, they'd be the ideal person to send out against the Nazi threat. And let's all pause there for a moment and think about this. We have cartoon characters doing battle with Nazis. All right. It's a really mixed bag of a screenplay. And I don't mean to spoil the end of the movie, but I really doubt they're ever going to make it. But in the end, Roger's coming up Hollywood Boulevard with a group of the tunes now that are victorious that they saved America. And over the, the heads of the crowd, he sees a familiar set of ears and he comes off the float. And sure enough, it's his mother. And there's a tearful reunion. But then oh. at that moment, Roger sort of pulls back. Well, wait a minute. If you're my mother... Who's my father? And the camera then whips around to the other side of Hollywood Boulevard and leaning against a tree is Bugs Bunny. <laughs> Looks into the camera and is like, ain't I a stinker? And that's the movie. That makes sense. I mean, it's not only from a plot perspective, but from a character perspective. It was a wonderful idea, though. The weird thing was that that script fell out of favor. And I think the Nazi World War II angle really frightened people at the oh, studio. Yeah, yeah. So they went with who discovered Roger Rabbit. And the idea was that you shift the story to Broadway. To give you some idea of when this was a serious idea at the studio, the humans who were going to be the couple that the film was going to be built around were Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman, who were married at the time. Ah, so this is a while ago. This one actually got the closest to being produced. In fact, I remember once Nancy and I were down visiting with our friends Tom and Tony Bancroft, who at that point were working at Disney MGM Studios, the animation unit. And I think it was Tom who pulled this into his office and said, let me show you something, and closes the door and proceeds to show me the animation test for who discovered Roger Rabbit. Oh, really? But at this version, this is them trying to do Roger CG. What year was this? This would have been 99 or 2000. It made it relatively far along the line, but there was this constant back and forth between who owned the rights to the characters between Steven Spielberg and, and Disney. And it just right. sort of fell off the planet at that point. And last year, Robert Zemeckis is out doing publicity for Allied, that Brad Pitt movie that he made. And he talked yeah. about how they actually had a script that he had seen for Roger Rabbit that he now wanted to circle back on. And they were going to move the timeline about four and five years ahead. So it's 
Roger and Jessica sort of dealing with the rise of television now and what that would do to animation. Bob Hoskins has had died. Right. I was going to say, well, at some point, yeah, Bob Hoskins dies. He's the, uh, he's the main, char- the main yeah. human character in the film. But Zemeckis was insisting, we're going to bring him back. He's going to be a ghost in this film. And so Roger and Jessica will get to interact with Bob Hoskins, at least in a limited way in this thing. But it may not yet be dead, Len. Well, but, uh, you know, they're doing amazing things these days with, with, uh, with computers, Jim. You, uh, it's entirely possible they they digitally recreate him uh, and get the uh, get the estate yeah. to sign off on it. Yeah. I think that day is so. coming, by the way. But that's a, that's a whole other whole other topic. All right. So next time we uh, we we cover part three of Toontown, right? We jump into the actual construction, which the lessons they learned on building Mickey's Toontown outside the berm were actively applied to Galaxy's Edge. Really? Oh, because it's beyond the, beyond the berm. Yeah. Because uh, this was not doing what they did with Pirates of the Caribbean, where you just build a show building and a, a thing that the guests never see. You're suddenly outside of the burn. Right. And, you know, how do you accommodate the backstage and all that? So the parallels between the project are surprising, actually. All right, we'll talk about that on the uh, next show. In the meantime, uh, folks, you've been listening to the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. Please go on to iTunes, Stitcher, and your local construction site and leave a review for the show and also tell us what you would like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show.